Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, or PDMP, risk scores that are calculated using secret algorithms may prevent patients who require pain medication from obtaining the drugs that they need. In particular, clinicians may be deterred from prescribing necessary pain management drugs due to law enforcement surveillance and the presence of PDMP risk scores. The risk scores consider factors that call into question the score's accuracy and suggest that marginalized patients will be prevented from obtaining pain management medications. One solution, regulation by the FDA. Welcome to the California Law Review Podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. Today, we will be discussing a piece by Jennifer Oliva titled Dosing Discrimination, Regulating PDMP Risk Scores. This article was published in Volume 110, Issue 1, in February 2022. Professor Oliva, thank you so much for sitting down to speak with us today. Thanks for having me, Carter. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. So to start out with, what inspired you to write this piece? Well, what inspired me is I've done spent quite some time uh, the last few years investigating substance use disorder and the impacts of federal drug policy at the federal and state level on individuals who suffer substance use disorder. And in the process of doing that, I realized that I hadn't written about pain patients, many of whom reached out to me um, in this process and, and said, hey, can you take a look at these, the, the algorithmic aspect of PDMPs? And how they're affecting us. And once I did, I realized that I would really would, would like to put a voice to this. There are patients out there suffering uh, who believe they have been unfairly discriminated against uh, based on the way these risk scores are constructed. What is a prescription drug monitoring program or PDMP and how is it used? Absolutely. So it is the most rudimentary form. A, a prescription drug monitoring program is simply some system that collects prescription information. And it collects prescription information about the actual prescription. And then what I mean by that is the name of the drug, the type of drug, the dosing amount, the route of administration. It also collects information about the individual patient. And that can range from anything from just the patient's name to a litany of information about the patient uh, diagnosis and condition, uh, gender, address, phone number, other prescriptions, uh, about the person that pres- or the individual that prescribes the, the drug. And, and because the collector of this information is usually a retail pharmacist, it collects information also about what we would call the dispenser or your local neighborhood pharmacist. Today, they're databases. Uh, they collect a ton of information. Uh, the pharmacist puts that information in the point of dispensing, and it's real-time information when you're having a prescription dispensed. And not only is it collecting a litany of information at the point of dispensing, it's collecting and incorporating information from many, many other digital surveillance systems, including electronic health records, sometimes, unfortunately, child welfare and criminal data or other court-related information. Um, it's collecting information from other states that integrate with one another on this and uh, layered on top of all of those things in the modern system. We're using a smart software platforms that have algorithmic risk scoring capacity. So again, look rifle through all this data, use certain proxies and data points about you to generate a score. That score in turn tells the clinician how risky you are. In this context, I mean, measure whether they're at risk, uh, for prescription drug misuse, overdose, diversion, those kind, doctor shopping, those kinds of things. 
And then what does the clinician do with this score that the algorithm spits out? That's the best question. So technically what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to look at the score and use it as one of any number of factors to decide how to treat and diagnose the patient, right? So it'd be one factor along with speaking to the patient, looking at the patient's medical history, their medical records, perhaps asking them questionnaire type questions, really knowing and understanding their complex medical condition. Unfortunately, though, because these PDMPs were sort of like law enforcement tools at inception, law enforcement accesses them and the clinicians know it. So you see a risk score with a red flag saying, Jennifer Oliva is at risk today. The question is, does the clinician um, do what they think is best for me, knowing all these complicated things about me, or are they compelled in some fashion by the algorithm in order to avoid triggering an investigation into, into their own prescribing behavior by like a state professional licensing board, like a board of medical practice, or worse yet, a criminal investigation by like the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration. So the clinicians are in a real tension point here where they are obligated under the, you know, their, their state stand, licensing standards, right, to do the best they can for the individual patient, right? On the other hand, they are being watched and surveilled with these really mechanical kind of rudimentary algorithms. Uh, so I, as I note in the paper, um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge this, uh, they're, they're caught in a tough spot. So you've mentioned that PDMPs were initially designed as law enforcement tools. So how do they come to influence the medical care that patients receive? Yeah, so they were used as law enforcement tools because we have this weird system in the United States where uh, health, public health agencies on the one hand, and we have a consumer protection agency like the FDA actually approves drugs. So OxyContin was approved, as you know, in 1995 uh, by the FDA as a slow release uh, analgesic, a pain reliever, um, right? So that's happening in one, in one area, and that's a public health agency filled with you know doctors and scientists. And then you have a, under the Department of Justice and the DOJ, this other agency that was created by President Nixon by executive order in 1973 called the Drug Enforcement Administration. And they have special authority over a subset of prescription drugs and some drugs that aren't prescriptions, illicit substances like heroin. Uh, And these are considered to be controlled substances based on their medicinal profile and more importantly to the DEA their risk of misuse, diversion, and these kinds of things into the illicit drug market, right? So the DEA, uh, of course, is the one that really cares about where the drugs are going and has all the supervision once it's off. Once it's approved by the FDA and it goes out from the manufacturer, they track, monitor the drug to make sure it doesn't go into the illicit market. That's That's emphatically their function here. And in order to do that, they want as many surveillance tools as possible so they can supervise what's going on out there. So basically what happened is we hit this opioid crisis. Uh, it starts to escalate in the mid-aughts, as I like to say, let's say between 1999 and the early 2000s. Only about a handful of states have these PDMPs, and they're fairly basic systems. They're, there's no algorithms or anything like that. The DEA and the DOJ get funding from Congress because they're supposed to do something about this. People are dying. You know, and they get funding from Congress to issue grants to states to ramp up these prescription drug monitoring programs. So effectively, they were funded by this Harold Rogers grant program under the DOJ and DEA. 
And uh, they really encourage the states to do extra surveillance um, at on the state level, at the prescribing level. And that's how we kind of got the transition. Clinicians now have to look them up because the state law mandates that they do that as directed by the DEA's best practices on PDMPs. And there you go. Now we have this kind of conflation of healthcare surveillance and um, uh, criminal surveillance in this very, very specific area of highly regulated drugs that are viewed as dangerous by the DEA, like opioids. In the article, you describe how prescribers and dispensers are now caught, quote, in a precarious vice between two sets of laws that motivate opposing clinical behavior. Can you talk about these competing interests and what this, you call a lose-lose legal environment, what this means for patient care? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it on the one hand, let's just talk about the legal lose-lose before we get into sort of medical ethics. And that's, a you know, you're a clinician who prescribes controlled substances. You're always worried about state licensure, right? And meeting the standard of care so you don't face a medical malpractice action, right? So you have that kind of that civil system pushing up against you that says you have to do individual treatment for the patient, follow certain guidelines, meet the standard of care. So the patient then should get an individual assessment based on the clinician's best judgment, et cetera, to avoid the med mal. On the other side, you have the federal government with a Controlled Substance Act, which regulates these prescription medications that are special, like I said, that are scheduled and viewed as dangerous. Opioids are among them. And they, the DEA is doing criminal investigations. Local law enforcement can use this stuff. So on the one hand, you're like, And those guys don't have the kind of medical training state boards do, right? They just don't because those state boards are filled with medical doctors and these guys are law enforcement officers. So they're using, uh, you know, really much more rudimentary tools. They don't do, they aren't toxicology experts. They aren't medical experts. They're looking at these risk scores. They're looking at that kind of stuff, like number of opioids a doctor prescribes. So if you get a, a, so here's how it works for a clinician. Just imagine a given day. You go to your office, you go in in the morning, you get a prescriber report that this electronic database automatically generates that's reviewing you and your prescribing behavior. And the report looks good on Monday, Carter. The report looks good on Tuesday. Everything's good. On Wednesday, you go to your email. You're feeling good. You're having your coffee. And there it is. Red flags all over the report. You've hit some kind of threshold or limit. Somehow this algorithm views you as an outlier or a problematic prescriber. So there you are, first thing in the morning thinking you're doing good, you know, with your coffee, what are you going to do during the day? The next patient you see, are you going to prescribe them a controlled substance, even if you believe it's medically indicated, or are you going to be so worried about the PDMP and these risk factors that you may adjust your prescribing, right, to get off the, uh, to get out of the uh, surveillance system or get yourself back into a non-red flag type of situation? That's the question. And there, and, and between me and you and, and the public, uh, there have been surveys done uh, anonymously of clinicians who admit that uh, the PDMP and this kind of surveillance does affect the decision making um, on their end. So I do think they're in a tough spot. The prescri- let's, the dispenser is also in a bit of a tough spot because they're police. They're being expected at the point of dispensing to police the medical doctor. They're not medical doctors. That's part of their duties. And again, the same thing. They have a le- state licensure. They can face malpractice actions as prescribers on the civil side. Again, they're supposed to treat patients according to a civil standard of care. But on the other hand, they're being surveilled and there's a potential uh, criminal investigation. So again, they're in a tough spot. 
So you talk about how PDMPs in calculating the score for a particular individual, they use variables called proxies to predict whether a patient is going to misuse prescription drugs in some way. Can you give some examples of the proxies that are used by the algorithm? Yeah, I'm going to sound like one of your terrible law professors right now with the, with the answer I'm going to give you. I absolutely will do that, but I have to caveat it with the fact that um, we don't know exactly what proxies uh, is, are used by these systems, except for what they make publicly available. So I've rifled through as many public documents as I can find um, to see what they'll admit. But again, they hold this information close. They say, yeah, we use these kinds of things. We're speculating about other things. So here's what I know that they've admitted they use. The number of prescribers and the number of dispensers that a patient visits, that's viewed as if you have more prescribers and more dispensers, you're trying to conceal something from one group or another, that's viewed as suspicious. Uh, the amount and strength of your medication, are you on a really high dose, and a lot high pill count? Are you on a type of medication that is frequently diverted or misused? Overlapping medications. There's the DEA likes to talk about this stuff as uh, drug cocktails, prescription drug cocktails. As like you know, if you mix a benzo with an opioid with a muscle relaxant, and they list these kind of they call them the trifecta cocktails. Are you prescribing all of that to one person because that's particularly uh, uh, liked by folks who are using the drugs recreationally, right? To experience euphoria and other things. Um, the distance traveled. So how far do you have to go from your home to your provider of record? Uh, method of payment is a huge one. They use this very frequently on patients um, where uh, if you're paying by cash or credit card and not by insurance, it looks like you're trying to invade the system or not have that recorded. And again, we're really um, concerned now. There are at least three states to admit they've incorporated court records, uh, including criminal records under their system. And there are other uh, uh, um, jurisdictions that are using sexual trauma abuse histories and questionnaires. And we're worried about how that's going to affect certain uh, subpopulations of patients. Right. So like you just mentioned, we should potentially be concerned about how these proxies impact certain populations. Can you give some examples of how it might lead to discriminatory outcomes for marginalized groups? I would love to. So the first thing, um, the first, the perhaps the biggest group overall are folks that are either like resource, relatively resource poor, socioeconomically disadvantaged. And I consider that group of people to be under or uninsured. And what I mean by that, people who don't have insurance have to pay by cash or credit card or they can't get a prescription. So automatically making that a proxy without some kind of mitigating factor about whether or not the person has insurance is really problematic. And I think that you all are well aware there's plenty of people who are gainfully employed, work 30-something hours a week. They just don't have employer-sponsored insurance. They're on the cusp. They're not in a Medicaid expansion state, and they simply just don't qualify for insurance and have to pay out of pocket. They have an ACA plan. Um, so they sometimes just have to pay for their own prescriptions. So I, that, again, that's a discriminatory factor. I've been very worried the, you know, the early stages of the opiate crisis is now everywhere, but was in, deeply impacted, uh, rural places, right? Like Appalachia and stuff. Then you have this distance traveled mixture. One of the problems in places like that, I used to live in West Virginia, is that um, you have to travel great distances by definition often to see a particular kind of specialist or provider. As these 
pill mills and other doctors have either gotten shut down or just gotten out of the pain management business altogether because it's risky. Uh, you travel further and further as that happens. You haven't done anything wrong as the patient. It's just part of the dynamic of their surveillance crackdown. So the, the actual PDMP surveillance creates some of these problems. I view that as, as punishing patients or things outside uh, of their control. Another area that people don't think about a lot um, is that people with very, very complex medical conditions are probably being discriminated against here. Um, when you say the number of prescribers, some kind of practice areas, certain practice areas, by definition, you have multiple prescribers or providers. And one example of that is oncology. So people who have advanced cancer often see, it's standard of care to see multiple different providers. So you have multiple different people providing you prescriptions. You're getting punished for that. That's just how oncology works. There's nothing nefarious about it. So those kinds of things. When it comes to sort of uh, race and gender, the problem becomes even more extreme. And I have a section of the paper on this. Um, it's quite shocking uh, for folks who don't know this, uh, but there's a long history of dismissing and refusing to treat uh, pain uh, for black patients and for women patients. For black patients, this, uh, this sort of behavior was based in longstanding and, and really upsetting racial mythologies about biology that date back to slavery and slave breeding that are entirely untrue. But things like uh, black people have different kinds of nerve endings in their body to stuff like they can withstand more pain to things like, you know, they're going to overreact to drugs and are more susceptible to becoming um, um, problematic drug users. None of these things are true, uh, but people continue to harbor those kinds of notions. And by people, I mean, unfortunately, people who practice uh, medicine. Uh, and for women, women are uh, frequently prescribed psych psychotropics when they go in and complain about pain because there's a longstanding myth that women um, are hypersensitive to pain. They're like, it's all in their head. They're sort of hist the histrionics. It's these very interesting stereotypes. So I was very concerned about women and black patients who are already grossly undertreated for their pain. That's been going on for hundreds of years due to these stereotypes being under surveillance who are poor and uninsured or rural because now we're piling three or four things on. Then I got triple upset. That was my double upset moment. Triple upset moment when I started hearing that they were, uh, you know, trauma histories and criminal records would come in. I don't know how to say it any more clear than this. Uh, data scientists will tell you that criminal records are so racially disparate in the United States uh, that they're basically a proxy for race. Uh, so I, that, that's going to be uber discriminating against people of color for sure and absolutely black people for certain and black men absolutely for certain for certain for certain and then uh, women uh, are much more likely uh, to report uh, trauma and sexual abuse um, there's a debate about do men are men sexually abused as much, and that may be but they're for very again horrible gender stereotyping reasons very reticent to admit that to other people are much more unlikely to report so women are going to have uh, considerably more likely to have more extensive records uh, around um, sexual abuse and trauma than men. So these are the kinds of things, and you start stacking up, and you can get to you know six tenfold problem really fast with certain subgroups. So you've done a great job of explaining why we should be concerned about the impact of these PDMPs and how they might be perpetuating existing disparities when it comes to patient treatment. My question is, what oversight? currently exists, you know, who's checking to make sure that PDMPs are actually accurate predictors of drug misuse or that they improve patient care? 
Yeah. So there's a, I have a bunch of answers to you for that. The, the short answer for the audience is it's a great question. It's the best one I've been asked so far because the answer is there is none. Um, there is no regulatory oversight of these things, but, but here's what they act. Here's how it actually goes down. The company self assesses. So we have to take, there's a private company that makes these things, uh, outsourced to the states and, um, they self assess and say these, these things measure risk. The problem with that is are not only all the things I just told you, and you thank you for giving me the time to explain um, all that stuff, but the fact that, you know, people who are experts in pain management, people who are experts in substance use disorder admit that it's, these conditions have complex etologies and even experts are terribly bad at predicting whether someone's going to develop some kind of problematic uh, here it falls, you know, all sorts of things, environmental factors, set, setting, all just a number of factors. It's very difficult to assess. It's a challenge. So if a human being who's been, you know, expert in this all this time, and by the way, we're algorithmic decision makers ourselves. I know people have critiques around this. We use our own proxies. But if we've been so bad at that, what information are you putting into the system that's going to, you know, get, get around what the human, what we know? or don't know about proxies ourselves. So that really concerns me. Second is that, like I said, uh, there's a long, long history of discrimination. So in, uh, one of the things about algorithms is they repeat the discrimination that they're fed because they use the information, right? The old information that you put in. So again, that it's that's also problematic. Um, so the fact that there's absolutely no regulation whatsoever is is really tragic to me. Certainly the states could regulate them. They could say, listen, uh, we won't buy your system unless you subject it to, the, to some kind of state external evaluation. But who has the actual legal authority? For sure, no doubt about it. And instead of going to 50 states, because all the states now have these, Missouri finally relented and adopted a legislative PDMP this summer, literally this past summer, 50th state. Um, instead, I, I thought, let's do a systemic fix instead of going to every individual state and try to persuade them. And the FDA has authority to regulate software that diagnoses or even assists in a diagnosis of a patient's uh, medical condition or treatment um, under its medical device uh, regulatory authority. So just to make that real simple, it's very complicated, but to make it really simple, the FDA regulates medical devices like pacemakers. They actually regulate medical devices like cotton balls. They regulate a lot of medical devices way more than they do PDMPs because they don't regulate them at all. But they have the authority to regulate them under a subcategory called software as a medical device. And basically what, what the criteria is that they've laid out is you know, these things have to be accurate and what they're ascertaining about a patient so that they're safe and effective. That's a standard under the statute. Is the medical device safe and effective for its intended use? Here, its intended use is to predict risk. Right. We don't want false positives or false negatives. Both are incredibly dangerous in this arena. So the question would be um, to te test the cri use the FDA's own criteria for software as a medical device and um, put the PDMPs up against it and, and see if they see if they make it to the finish line. Would you mind talking a little bit more about why the data and the algorithm details are kept confidential when they have such a major influence on law enforcement and healthcare? Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, this is, you know, I'm glad you asked again because it's complicated, but it's also um, folks that I think kind of don't believe me when I first tell them <laughs> this. They say, well, because here's what's happening. There's a state law that says we're going to have a prescription drug monitoring program. And like I said, as of last summer, 
every state has this. And we're going to, what that law does is it says a pharmacist must enter into an electronic database all this information about you, the patient, before they give you a particular kind of drug. And we'll call them covered controlled substances. Okay. So that's it. Opioids for sure. Okay. All right. Everybody knows that story. So we'll just stick with that. So that's what's happening. And um, what people don't understand is they think, well, I've got HIPAA protection or I've got health data privacy. The pharmacist can't just give away my information. But there's no HIPAA protection when a state board asks for information from a pharmacist. So we have a state law mandating that a healthcare provider, a traditional healthcare provider, a pharmacist, give up traditionally protected healthcare information like your drug that you're on, right, and your information to a state agency that's not covered. That state agency, right, is using software that's provided to it by a third party that's a private for-profit company, um, and that third-party software developer is, refuses to tell the state what his algorithm does or exactly what the proxies are beyond the generalizations that I kind of gave you today. The state knows what I know uh, about the software, and that's kind of terrifying as well because I told you everything I know, and, and as you know, there's there's gaps. So the bottom line is that no one actually regulates the platform and the software. We're simply taking it from the algorithmic maker. And what they say is, look, if I give this up and if I give this up privately, I've given up my business. My business is develop a, a risk scoring algorithm. Um, so actually, at the end of the day, I'll say this to be dramatic because I was like an opportunity. You have way more protection on correcting and dealing and regulatory, you know, oversight from the FTC, et cetera, on your credit score under federal law than you do for this health data assessment of risk with the PDMP because the FDA has not actually assessed these things or regulated them yet. So finally, let's get to your proposed solution, which you've already briefly mentioned. You argue that we should have the FDA rather than the DEA regulate PDMPs as part of its broader authority to regulate what is called software as a medical device. So first of all, why did you focus on the FDA rather than the DEA? Well, that one's easy. I have a number of other solutions that I'll tell you why I didn't can take take on, even though they're 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 possibly legal. This one, the DA simply doesn't have the authority. So, the Drug Enforcement Administration for all the folks at home does not have the authority to approve new medical products. They're not a consumer protection agency. The Controlled Substances Act simply does not give them that kind of authority. It's the F- the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, that has the authority to assess uh, uh, drugs and dev- medical devices and all sorts of other things that are on the market to make sure, like I said, they're safe and effective for patients for their intended use. So FDA was the way to go as far as those two agencies are concerned because they have the explicit authority under the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act to actually regulate medical devices, and they've had that authority in some way, shape, or form since 1976. And what are the benefits of this alternative? So for me, like some people say, well, how do you know the algorithm's terrible? You know, we've talked about all this secrecy. Maybe, maybe if, here's another thing people say, this one really gets me. Um, If these, you're saying these doctors and these clinicians have been sexist and racist and stuff all these years, maybe the algorithm's better. Um, How can it do worse? And my answer to that question is, I guess that's possible. It doesn't look like it is. Uh, there's a 
wonderful health economist at Northeastern University I want to give a shout out to is who I want to thank today, Carter, is Dr. Angela Kilby, because she modeled this and sort of our worst fears came to fruition based on how we were kind of looking at it. And she modeled this uh, algorithm and this platform, and it was a shockingly high, something like 89% of the folks that were flagged as at risk were like falsely flagged. So it was a it wasn't a close call. It wasn't you know, 20% off. I mean, this was a, you know, I think I'm going to get 11% right. If I mean, we had a chance, you 50, 50, if you're saying risk, no risk, if you're going a black and white like that. So that's unfortunate. So, you know, that's a huge uh, issue. Um, I feel like if the FDA, you know, applies some kind of standard to this, a couple things can happen. One is we'll know one way or the other, whether this is accurate enough that it deserves, right, The patients deserve to be subjected to it as a fair, is it actually helping anything? Second is that a lot of times when you just, if the, if the FDA even threatens a, a drug or device maker with some kind of oversight, they're going to step up their game. And what I mean by that is the, the individual algorithmic maker will not want to fail the FDA's test and have all their products pulled from all these states, the biggest maker of this these algorithms, uh, Bamboo Health uh, services 40-something-odd states. They have a huge stake, right, in making sure they get through the FDA's process here. So just the, just the threat, just the, 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 the sense of oversight here, if the FDA says we're going to start looking at it, I think could incentivize um, some, you know, internal soul searching and uh, perhaps some improvement. So those are the reasons why I came, came up with the FDA versus the DA. So another question I have um, of course, this is speculation. But do you think that healthcare providers would support this change to the FDA as a regulator here? That's yet another good question. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm giving these guys, like I said, I think they're in, the, in a tough spot. I'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt. I think that they want to do the right thing, um, and of course, they don't want their controlled license suspension suspended and be under investigation, lose their livelihood, possibly lose their liberty by going to prison for some kind of felony distribution charge from the DEA. So these guys are in a tough, tough spot. Some folks love the PDMP, or at least they claim they do. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Under our current healthcare delivery system, you all, have, any of you all who've ever gone to a medical appointment know, like you're not going to be sitting there with a doctor all day. They're pretty short appointments. Insurance only wants to pay for about 15 minutes. So the PDMP really is creates a nice shortcut that's helpful in a system where doctors have to make decisions really, really quickly, really complex decisions. It's that nice number. It just pops up there and it gives you some kind of guidance and it saves you a lot of time. So they're efficient. So if you believe that they're accurate and they're that efficient, that's like a huge plus for you as a clinician. On the other hand, I will say I do think there's plenty of people who are concerned uh, about patient health and safety. Um, they absolutely want to do the right thing here. And that they would sleep a lot easier at night if they knew that these systems were accurate and actually benefiting the folks that they're prescribing to. So I think that there's probably a lot of mixed feelings. Uh, I do note in the paper that some fo folks do th have said, I think the PDMPs are clinically useful. And I think I, my argument would be that that makes sense if you understand the American healthcare delivery system, but I don't necessarily know that that's in patients' best interest when they've never been validated. What are the potential barriers to this approach? I know in your article, you mentioned both legal barriers and also barriers that are rooted in data science. 
And how might the FDA address these barriers? One of the biggest problems with any kind of this, any kind of algorithmic regulation is one of them is can you even regulate an algorithm that is a smart algorithm that's evolving on its own, right? From machine learning, because the people who design the code don't even know what the algorithm's doing. Like, how do you regulate a, a, a monster like that? It's very, very, very challenging. But let's, this is a fairly, from what we understand, a fairly static algorithm right now. I'm worried about where it's headed. But right now it's a fairly static algorithm. So let's say it is, a, let's just assume it's a formula and it's based on most of these factors that they've admitted that they use. So in a context like that, you really, you can regulate it. The problem with the FDA and even the criteria, which is way better than non-regulate, all of the information and the research that we know is that humans are terrible managers of algorithms. They're just not good at it. They're not good at overriding algorithms one way or the other. That's not what we should be relying on. So the number one thing that concerns me here is an obstacle. And one of the reasons why I thought about not proposing this solution was I am concerned that what's going to happen here is they're going to say, Ah, eh, the algorithm. Yeah, sometimes the algorithm's good. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But that's why we have these genius MDs at the end of the day, and they can sort through all of this and make a decision. And they, we keep doing the risk scores, and we expect doctors to be able to miraculously like figure out when it's right and when it's wrong. And the FDA lets that go. That's my biggest concern: is that that's what we get out of the regulatory system here. Out of curiosity, what other approaches did you consider and then ultimately reject in favor of the one that you wrote about in this article? So uh, one of the things I was thinking about, and I am going to write something on this, and uh, um, but you know, this stuff can amount to, based on what I'm telling you, disability discrimination can vi- violate the Americans with Disabilities Act, could violate uh, the Anti-Discrimination and the Affordable Care Act, which is Section 1557. Etc. If you have blanket policies around, we give this person a risk score here because they're a complex patient, because they have certain kinds of conditions, right? Because they're a certain gender or race. I was going to say there's all sorts of different kinds of lawsuits we can bring. Disability discrimination lawsuits, anti-discrimination lawsuits, possibly products liability lawsuits. So that was one solution. And then the second solution was going to be something at the state level. You know, the states buy this stuff. They have total authority. They can even do a contractual requirements. The states have a lot of power here because they're the ones actually purchasing the software. But my problem was these pay patients really impressed on me. And this is something I'm really good about doing boots on the ground stuff and listening to people because I learned this from them and I'm being serious. It's very difficult to do these one-off solutions and for all of them to be plaintiffs and all these cases and fighting all these individual agencies all the time. So I thought the first time I'm dealing with this algorithm stuff, let me point out some of the concerns and come up with the most systemic solution. So notwithstanding all the concerns I already told you about involving the FDA scheme, and I have five more I won't get into and bore you about now, um, is that it, it's a one-stop shop to fix this across the board. They'll evaluate this stuff, and it's got to meet a certain standard at the federal level. Well, thank you so much, Professor. Your article presents a really compelling case for greater oversight of PDMPs, And it also raises a lot of questions about the wisdom of coupling patient care with secretive law enforcement algorithms like this. Thank you so much for bringing attention to this topic and for joining our podcast. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. And I just have to say at the end, I really thanks to you and your whole team for just such a fabulous job. And anyone who's lucky enough to get a California Law Review placement will be treated exceptionally well 
It's just been an absolute uh, wonderful experience from start to finish. So just thank you so much for taking a chance on the article. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review podcast. If you would like to read Professor Oliva's article, you can find it in Volume 110, Issue 1 of the California Law Review at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Twitter. You can find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. If you are able to leave us a rating and review, we would greatly appreciate it. See you in the next episode.